Well, good morning, everybody, and a special good morning to all of you joining us at Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us. We're starting a new series today that we're calling How to Stand Out When You Don't Fit In. Have you ever felt the discomfort of not fitting in? I used to have a friend who I was a season ticket holder to the New York Islanders. And whenever they played the Flyers, he would invite me to come up and periodically I would go. You ever uh, sit in an arena with 20,000 nasty New York fans and you're a Philadelphia fan? Uh, You immediately know that you don't fit in and they're obnoxious and loud and all. And there was another example. I am, my first job was at Pennsylvania Engineering. Now that may uh, seem like a real highfalutin intellectual job for you. Uh, I put a refrigerant into a cylinder and loaded them on trucks. That was my job. And I did that for a number of summers during high school. And I'll never forget my first day, my first week there. Everybody else had been there for years and years. I show up, I don't know anything. My hands are sore every day. I can't carry the cylinder correctly. Everybody else is kind of laughing. Nobody knows me. They all know each other. And I just didn't fit in. A few years ago, I was in Macon, Georgia. Talk about not fitting in. You ever been the real South, like Macon? We're not talking South. This is the real South. I was there speaking at a conference, and at the first night of the conference, I was asked, hey, toward the end of the week, would you mind coming over to the courthouse and speaking at a lunch? We have a big lunch meeting. And so I said, yeah, I didn't have anything else to do. I agreed. I show up. All of the judges from the county are there, all the attorneys from town are there, and every single one of them had either a light blue or a light tan pin cord suit. Know these ugly suits are there? Well, I would have given my right arm to have a pin cord suit. I had a navy blue blazer and tan pants, and I didn't fit in. Some of you may uh, come to Calvary Church and you just don't fit in. You don't know any of the songs. You don't know any of the people. You're not sure where to sit. You've never read the Bible. And you wonder if you really fit. Can I just say, we're really glad that you're here. We're welcoming you as best we can. And how can we stand out when we don't fit in? We're going to use that as our series title as we work our way through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And you're going to discover that Daniel and his three friends stood out in the most positive ways. You know, it's easy to stand out in negative ways. How do you stand out in a positive way when you don't quite fit in? Well, this morning, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1, which actually is an introduction to the whole book, but we kind of need an introduction to the introduction just to kind of orient our thinking. So before I read chapter 1, let's kind of have an introduction to the introduction so you understand where we are and what's going on in Daniel. First of all, I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in the fact that Daniel didn't understand a lot of what he wrote about. Because you'll discover as you read through Daniel, as you think through Daniel, as we go through Daniel, Daniel's a hard book in places. Well, Daniel even said this, I didn't understand. I don't understand. God's revealing things. He's writing them down, but he says, I heard, but I don't understand. Well, if the guy who wrote it doesn't understand, what are the chances worth of some things we're not going to understand? We won't understand it all either. But here's what Daniel did do and what we need to keep in mind. Don't get lost in the details. Keep the big picture in view. That's what Daniel did, and that's what we're going to try to do. If we can keep the big picture in view, the details may not be completely understandable, but our hope will be found in the big picture. Now, how's Daniel put together? Well, it's kind of interesting in that Daniel is in two halves. The first half, chapters one through six, 
The first half is normal. And we could kind of call that at home in Babylon. So here's Daniel and his friends, uh, four Jewish guys. They're in Babylon. They're not in Israel. They're not in Judah. They're not in Jerusalem. They're in ba- They're prisoners of war in Babylon. But interestingly, um, God says, but there's hope. Don't succumb to depression, discouragement, anger. There's hope there. But you can be at home while you're in Babylon. The second half of Daniel is freaky and weird. So we we won't spend a whole lot of time there. The first half, six really neat stories about how to stand out when you don't fit in. The second half, really weird stuff about all kinds of crazy beasts. Um, We got a ram and a goat fighting each other almost to the death. Like, what in the world's going on? We'll spend a couple weeks there, but we're not going to spend that much time there. Two halves. The first half, understandable, fun. Second half, weird, strange. The second half is really all about how do we make it home from Babylon? If the first half being at home in Babylon, how can we make it to our real home from Babylon? That's an important lesson to learn. We're going to keep the big picture in mind, not the details. If you're new to the Bible, or if you've never read through the entire Bible, uh, you may think that miracles are all over the place. Interestingly, that's not true. In fact, miracles, even in the Bible, are the exception to the rule. In fact, miracles cluster in four bunches in the Bible. The first bunch of miracles happens all around Moses in the Exodus. So you have all these miracles, you know, the plagues on Egypt, you know, the frogs and the blood and all that stuff. And God provides and protects his people through the desert, you know, through the wilderness. Um, That's the first set of miracles. The second set of miracles comes around Elijah and Elijah. False false prophecy and teachers are kind of rising. And God gives a lot of miracles. Oil never runs out. Um, You know, people are protected and God gives miracles to validate his spokesman and his message. So that's the second cluster of miracles. The third cluster of miracles are all over Daniel's book. Daniel protects and Daniel provides for his people in the foreign country of Babylon. That's the third big cluster of miracles. And then the last cluster of miracles comes in Jesus' life. He shows up and he performs all kinds of miracles. He controls nature. He heals people. So four big clusters of miracles. Daniel is one of the four clusters. Well, if for no other reason, that should cause us to want to look at Daniel because God sends miracles and God does miracles to say, hey, pay attention. Something new is going on here. Listen up. And God's saying something special. Daniel is actually one of those places. Daniel is in Babylon, as I said. Maybe you've heard the word exile. Daniel is in exile. Exile is related to the word alienation. And we often talk about being alienated. Sin alienates us from God, from ourselves, from other people in the world. Exile is kind of a physical representation of that alienation. Daniel was alienated from his hometown, from his friends, from the culture he knew, from his education, from his future. Daniel's alienated from all of that, and he's in Babylon. Now, immediately you may think, Babylon bad, exile bad. And there's a sense in which, as you read through the Bible, that's true. But here's here's a little nuance to that. Jeremiah 
is a prophet in Jerusalem. So he didn't get taken in the exile. Jeremiah stayed back, right? So he, he didn't get taken to Babylon. Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem. But he writes a letter to all of the people in exile in Babylon. Imagine the posted stamp. That must have caused. He sends it to Jerusalem all the way over to Babylon. And I want to read you the end of the letter. And here's something that we need to keep in mind. God not only wants us to survive, God wants us to thrive in situations of exile and alienation. Here's how Jeremiah ends the letter. Build houses and settle down. What? You think Jeremiah would be saying, resist, don't give in, don't cower, do No, no, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And look at this. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Because if they prosper, you will prosper too. And I think what Jeremiah is saying to the people in exile and what God is saying to us, we can thrive in situations of exile, not being in our ultimate home. We cannot just survive, we can thrive. And we need to be about praying for our context, praying for our schools, for our workplaces, for our cities, for our governing officials. We need to be involved in serving for the common good and praying for the good of all those things. Just like Jeremiah told the people in exile, pray for the prosperity of the city because if they prosper, you will prosper too. And God wants Babylon to prosper so his people in Babylon can prosper. That's not the whole message, but that's a piece that sometimes gets lost when we read the Old Testament. But you need to keep that piece in mind when you read Daniel or otherwise you're wondering how in the world are Daniel and his friends thriving in a situation when they shouldn't be thriving, they shouldn't even be surviving. Well, that's kind of a, some of the stuff you need to know as we get started. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, your iPad, whatever you've got, turn to Daniel chapter one. And uh, interestingly, the first six accounts um, are, are put together in six chapters. So I'm gonna read the first chapter, the introduction to the book, and then next week we'll do two and three and so forth for the next few weeks. So here we go, follow along as I read Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure, of, treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, Daniel, Bel Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, 
and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And that's kind of a long account. Introduces us to the characters. Daniel and his three friends introduces us to why they're in Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the situation they're in, and all the other events that we'll look at in the future happen after the events of chapter one. Did you notice that uh, Daniel had it all? Didn't it seem that way? I mean, Daniel starts out back in Jerusalem, back in his hometown, he has it all. Just to refresh your memory, look at the verses that I read. Look after the, uh, the dash. They were young men without any physical defect. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Daniel had it all. He was young. He was handsome. He was athletic. He was smart. And he had good people skills. That's kind of what it means to be in the king's court, serve that way. He has a high IQ. He has a high EQ. Daniel has it all. He's young. He's good looking. He's well connected. If he's not in the royal, royal family, he's in some kind of nobility stream. Daniel has it all. Can you imagine what Daniel would have thought about when he thought about his future? It was nothing but bright, right? I mean, he got the best grades. He was on all the athletic teams. He was captain of the, of the different sporting. Daniel had it all. And my guess is uh, when he would sit and think, he'd say, well, I've been valedictorian of every school I've ever been in. I'm the captain of every sports team I play on. I'm pretty bright. I ace all the tests. I've got really good people skills. I'm going to marry the hottest girl in school. We're going to have the hottest family. I'm going to have the best career. I'm going to have lots of money. I'm going to be well-connected. My resume will be better than anybody's resume. My future is bright. I've got life by the tail. The future has no bounds for me. That was Daniel. Daniel had it all. 
But Daniel lost it all. The first verse of Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, besieges Jerusalem. You know what a besiege was? You kind of build a, you know, a fort, you build a, a blockage, a blockade around the city, and you don't let any supplies in, and you don't let any people out, and eventually the people either starve to the point where they either throw their hands up and give up, or they starve to death on the inside. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem. Daniel's world was falling apart, and then to make matters worse, Nebuchadnezzar conquers the city He picks the best and the brightest. Therefore, he picks Daniel and his three friends. He picks the best and the brightest and ships them back to Babylon. Daniel had it all. His education counts for nothing now. His resume, nothing. His future is in the pits. Daniel went from being on the highest mountain to being in the lowest dungeon in a very quick period of time. Do you know what it's like to to be in Babylon? The place you really don't want to go. You ever been there? Some of you are there. Some of you are there this morning. The place you don't want to go. The place you could never dream of going, right? Maybe your marriage ends and you had these really great plans for your marriage. Your kids don't turn out the way you want. The job that you thought would bring financial security, you lose the job and they fire you. Your reputation is besmirched. You, you know, a few words you shouldn't have said, a few acts you shouldn't have done, and before you know it, you're, your life's on the trash heap. You're kind of in Babylon, right? What do you do when you're in Babylon? What do you do when you're feeling that alienation? What are you doing when you're, what, what do you do when you're in exile? You feel like God's blessing and all that God wants is over here, but you've been removed from that and now you're all the way over here and you feel like everything that God wants for you is distant from you. What what do you do? Well, we learn a few things from Daniel chapter one and I just want to kind of rehearse them quickly with you. They'll come up again and again and again in the first six chapters. How do you stand tall? How do you stand out when you don't fit in? Here's the biggest lesson. You know, we said we want to keep the big picture. Here's the biggest picture of Daniel. Both halves. Here's the shining message of Daniel. In spite of appearances, God is in control. In spite of how it looks, God is in control. In spite of the fact that you're in Babylon, in spite of the fact that you're living in exile, in spite of the fact that you're experiencing all this alienation, life's not going the way you want, and you think there's no way out, God is in control. It's kind of interesting how God reminds Daniel of that truth. And Daniel, therefore, reminds us in chapter 1 a number of times. You read it through again later and see these points that I mentioned. First of all, in the first two verses, um, God or Daniel gives us what happened and then why it happened. So here's what happened. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged. That's what happened. But Daniel wasn't content to just write what happened. He records why it happened. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Do you look for God's hand in in the situations, difficulties that you don't choose? 
Do you ever look for traces of God's care and mercy and comfort and compassion when things aren't going the way you want? And so Daniel writes, what happened? And it's not good, but he says, you know, God promised that if we lived outside of his will and continued to rebel, we would be thrown out of the land. And that's exactly what happened. God gave. But that's not the only God gave in the chapter. As you read on, I put up the next line. God caused the official to show favor and compassion. Think about it. Here's the guard watching the POWs. He's in charge of providing their training, making sure they eat right, all of that. He shows favor and compassion to them. Why would he do that? Why would the guard look with favor and compassion on a POW, somebody he's guarding? He's on the winning team. They're on the losing team. They're obviously not good. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. There's no human reason that the guard would have compassion and favor on Daniel, except God caused him to have favor and compassion on Daniel and his friends. Daniel was looking for the hints of seeing God's hand and the hints of God's working and mercy and love and compassion, even in Babylon. And we need to do that too. Here's another one. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men. Now, if you remember from the story, Daniel tells, don't ask me why he would do this. He must have had a lapse of memory. He says, hey, I got an idea. I'm drawing a line right here. I don't want any of the royal food from the king's table. I want to eat vegetables and water. I'm not signing up for that diet. I'm, I'm, I want to sign up for the royal diet. Daniel says, we want vegetables and water. How in the world would somebody look healthier and pudgier at the end of 10 days if they ate vegetables and water? I was reminded of that this past week. You ever notice from culture to culture and kind of era to era, pictures of health and beauty change? So for example, today, being super tan isn't cool. Like we're all into SPF, right? High numbers, high numbers. I remember when I was growing up, I knew my older sister and friends, her friends, they would lather up with baby oil, remember? They wanted to get as tan as possible. Well, today, that's kind of like sinful. You get all kinds of disease. Oh, you can't do that. We're into SPF 50 or 500. Um, from culture to culture, in some cultures, a pasty white complexion is beauty because if you're tan and you're in shape, that means you have to do manual labor and you work outside, therefore you would be lower class. It kind of changes culture to culture. Oh, that brings us to this. In the ancient world, people that worked in the king's court, like the wise men, kind of like Daniel and his friends, the pudgier, the better. The more roly-poly, the better. You ever see, if the movie's gonna be accurate, the wise men are always a little pudgy. You know, big girth in the waist. Because if you had a lot of girth and you were pudgy, that meant you were wealthy and that meant you were wise. You didn't have to work. You could sit and think all day, right? So the point isn't that at the end of 10 days, Daniel's going to be more shredded. And No, no, no. At the end of 10 days, he's not going to look as pudgy. And I'll tell you what, if you eat vegetables and water for 10 days and that's all you eat, you're not going to be pudgy. But at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends were pudgier than the rest of the guys. How did that happen? God did that. God did that. And I have the sneaking suspicion that in, as the other incidents roll and as Daniel's life goes by, he remembers, we ate vegetables and water and got pudgy. That's what God did. Interesting. Next one. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kind of literature and learning. 
Daniel and his friends had minds like a steel trap for Babylonian academics. They're studying Babylonian stuff. And so the letter, Daniel didn't refuse to study Babylonian stuff. That's not what he refused. He had a mind like a steel trap and so did his friends. When they went to class and learning Babylonian mythology, Babylonian enchanting, Babylonian history, Daniel knew it all. He and his friends were ahead of the class. And God allowed them, see what it says? God gave them knowledge and understanding of Babylonian academics. And so when the chapter ends, Daniel and his three friends are head and shoulders better than all of the other best of the breast when it came to the training that they got in Babylon. And God did that. Daniel wants us to remember God's fingerprints are all over what's happening. You know, I have this thinking suspicion that when bad stuff enters your life, if you're anything like me, God's far away. God doesn't care. God doesn't love me anymore. No, no, God is in that stuff. And we need to look for the traces and discover the hints and allow God to do what he wants to do and accomplish what he wants. That's how Daniel and his friends, remember, in spite of appearances, God is in control. The second thing Daniel does is he's proactive. I'm not exactly sure why he draw the line over not, drew the line over not eating the royal food. He actually eats the royal food in chapter 10. So it's not that somehow it was breaking kosher laws. Or Daniel just said, you know what, I had enough. Nebuchadnezzar can change my name. He can set the curriculum for the school. He can do all of that, but I'm not going to eat all that food. Maybe he wanted to identify with the other captives. Maybe he wanted to identify with people that were you know, eating vegetables and water. But for whatever reason, he decided he was going to do something. And you know, if we're going to stand out and we don't fit in, you're going to have to draw some lines. And certainly we need to draw the line that we'll be on the obedient side, not the sinful side. But maybe there are some other lines you have to draw too. I don't know where God's asking you to draw them. But I do know this, we need to be proactive. Draw some lines. Have different attitudes at work, different attitudes in school. Share credit rather than take credit. I don't know where the lines are for you. Be a servant rather than a hoarder of what God's given to you. Draw some lines. Be proactive. You can't escape this lesson, and we're going to say it over the next few chapters. Commit to living in community. Daniel and his three friends do everything together. They go through training together. They go through school together. They pray together. They're being oppressed together. They're praying together. They are doing life together. We need to get better at that at Calvary Church. So in Southerton, we have section leaders because we need to figure out how to do community better. Daniel and his three friends did life together. Not just school, not just church, not just prayer time. They did life together. We need to figure out how to do life better. It's one thing to take in information. You can do that by yourself. But taking that information and bringing it to life in your life, that's going to take some other people beating on you a little bit and helping you think through how to do it. And so Daniel and his three friends did life together. Here's one last thing I want to mention. You know, Daniel has lots of admirable qualities. In fact, Daniel is one of the few characters in the Bible. I think there are only maybe two or three. One of the few characters in the Bible that we don't know anything negative about. That doesn't mean Daniel was sinless. He screwed up. We just don't know what they were. We'll find out one day. Daniel has lots of admirable qualities. But our call is not to follow Daniel. Our call is to follow the one to whom Daniel points. And notice, if we put Daniel onto the big landscape of the Bible, all of a sudden we see someone coming 
that is the destination that Daniel points. Let me just mention a couple of things. God took Daniel from Jerusalem, his hometown where he belonged and was comfortable, and moved him to Babylon where he was oppressed. But he obeyed and did what God wanted in that strange context. Daniel risked his life to preserve his life and and to preserve the life of the Israelites from whom the Messiah would come. Does that story sound familiar? How about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him. God took his son, Jesus, from the place he had been for all eternity, a place of comfort and familiarity, a place where he belonged and was worshipped. And God sent him to a foreign place, sent him to this world, And he brought the values and the priorities of that ultimate kingdom into this world. And he didn't risk his life. He gave his life so that you and I can have life. So you look at Daniel and you admire some of those qualities. But don't stop with Daniel. Allow Daniel to lead you to the ultimate one that we do need to follow. Because it's Jesus who we are to follow. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our Master. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to do a chapter a week. So I would encourage you, read chapter two before next week. You've got really cool stories. We're going to see that cluster of miracles and what they mean. God wants to call our attention to these passages. You can be teed up to do that in Daniel chapter two. Would you please stand? Let me pray and we'll call it a morning. Let's go, Eagles. Father, we give you thanks for this book. And Lord, even though there are lots of details that those of us in this room may disagree on, things we never heard of, things we won't understand, Lord, thanks for the big picture. In spite of appearances, Lord, you're in control. And Lord, you need to remind me of that lesson in my life, and you need to remind us of that lesson, because as we live life here, we feel the strangeness of it. Lord, help us to stand out in appropriate ways and not fit in in ways that we shouldn't. And Lord, help us to keep the big picture before our minds. You know what you're doing. In spite of appearances, you're in control. You love us, and we need to follow you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.